Welcome to The State of the Markets, episode 54. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Rory Sutherland. He's vice chairman at the global advertising and marketing agency Ogilvy Group. He's also one of the most well-known and sought-after marketing experts. He's the author of The Wikiman and the forthcoming book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Rory is known for his charismatic TED Talks, which are fascinating, insightful, and highly entertaining. He also writes for The Spectator and a number of other publications. Tim and I join Rory on a conference call. Please note that some of the language in this may not be suitable for younger children, so if you're listening in the car or somewhere where they're in earshot, please put some headphones on. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Welcome to the show, Rory. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, it's great to have you on the show, Rory. Can you tell us what drew you to the world of advertising? I think, to be honest, I mean, even when I was sort of 11 or 12, I was always fascinated with advertising. And it was always, you know, you you run through, you know, childhood and so forth, you run through a whole lot of options. And it was always up there in the top three. And partly because I grew up, of course, in an age of fantastically good advertising. So in the 70s, um, when I was sort of seven or eight, you know, my brother and I would fight to get the Sunday Times colour supplement effectively so we could read the ads. Oh, right. And um, it's hard to remember that, but um, there was a period particularly of extraordinarily good ads from uh, CDP, a really remarkable agency, which more or less had created the Sunday Times colour supplement, in fact. Uh, it was the agency and the media director of the agency who persuaded the Sunday Times to produce um, uh, you know, a, a colour a magazine folded in with the newspaper because they said, if you think about it, Britain was always rather weak on colour printed magazines. France had all those weird things like uh, uh, VSD and Paris Match. And the Brits didn't really have much like that. Um, and so there wasn't much opportunity for colour print advertising back when newspapers were purely black and white. And, um, uh, you, know, you know, the ads typically, both the, the car ads, the um, fantastic ads for Smirnoff and so forth, um, it was that really, which was as much as the content of the magazine that you were fighting over. It seems extraordinary now that the idea of, you know, colour print was a kind of novelty, but it really was. Did you ever look at the adverts and, and think, oh, I could do better than that and, and write your own with your brother? Uh, it, no, I mean, I, I've, um, uh, I always enjoyed doing sort of mock ads for things. Um, and oh. uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I, I still find it interesting, actually, just to um, produce an advertisement for things which haven't been advertised. Uh, you know, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of conundrums um, out there where... To be honest, I mean, government, for example, is probably too reluctant to use advertising. If you look at government ad spend, um, it's about the same as I think B&Q and spec savers added up. So you have the government determining the spend of about 40% of GDP. But because it's politically not very expedient to say we spent some money on advertising, even if it works, by the way, because for the government to spend money on intangible things is often viewed as kind of immoral. Or, or by definition wasteful, um, the government actually spends far too little money solving problems through communication. 
So, you know, if you take problems like how do people use their GPs better, the, the you know, the misuse of A&E, you know, there are things which cost government hundreds of millions of pounds, where with, you know, a few million pounds worth of advertising, you can make a significant dent in the, prob in the problem. But they are disproportionately reluctant to do it. Uh, they're also reluctant, too reluctant, I think, uh, to use psychological solutions in general, which may not involve bought advertising, but simply involve, you know, renaming things, reframing things, that kind of stuff. That's something that other companies suffer from as well, isn't it? They they don't seem to see the value in advertising. Well, I think it's very important. Um, it's worth remembering, of course, that if you believe that standard economic theory is true, which of course it isn't. I mean, it's a you know, it's a very poor approximation of reality at the best of times. But if you believe in economics, it's worth remembering that economics assumes that everybody is there making decisions under conditions of perfect trust and perfect information. And if you assume that world, then, of course, marketing and advertising shouldn't exist. And so but as a result, you tend to see uh, marketing and communication as a cost to be minimized not as a source of value creation. Um, I mean, Austrian school economists obviously would differ. I mean, th th this is one of the most interesting discoveries I made, is that Austrian school economists, along with, for example, ecologists and biologists, understand advertising and marketing very well. There's a lot of advertising in nature, for example. Um, the Austrian school treats it as axiomatic that value is subjective and therefore value can be created or destroyed by how you describe something as much as by what it is. It, it, it's, a, it, it's the peculiar kind of neoclassical school of economics that we have uh, that uh, essentially assumes that everybody knows exactly what they want already, knows exactly how much they'd be prepared to pay for it. And it's simply a question of finding that thing as at, low, uh, 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 at as low a cost as possible. Now, if you think about that, the, it actually worries me because if you believe, and, and you know, I'm not talking here about you know the you know Nobel Prize winning economists or you know um, you know I'm not talking about Paul Krugman here, but if you're one of those people who's done an MBA and you've done fairly basic economics. What that economic way of looking at the world drives you to do, because you assume that people know what they want already. Okay. And because you assume essentially that they, um, uh, they know what they're prepared to pay for something, and therefore what they're essentially trying to do is to buy what they want at the lowest possible cost. Okay. That totally wrong-headed assumption will drive you when making business decisions essentially to dedicate all your time to optimizing efficiency rather than growing opportunity. And you know, I, I actually think the belief in that kind of Friedmanite um, approach to capitalism is deeply um, damaging to economic growth because it sees business essentially as an efficiency competition. You've highlighted the Austrian perspective. This is sort of getting ahead of what I was going to ask because it was one of my first questions was going to be, how on earth did, an, did a guy from Adland stumble upon Ludwig von Mises? Oh, right. Um, interesting one, this. Um, generally, one of the nice things about working in advertising, by, by the way, and one of the reasons I recommend it to curious people, is it's one of the few careers where 
anything you read or do or watch might be of value to your life. You know, if you're an actuary sitting in a French cafe and watching people wander past or reading uh, random books on evolutionary biology is unlikely to improve your performance as an actuary. But if you're an advertising copywriter, there's more or less nothing you can read, watch, observe, by the way, including the trashiest stuff as well, I'm glad to say, um, that might not make you better at your job. And so David Ogilvy's definition of a good copywriter was someone who was an extensive browser in all kinds of fields. And it so <clears> happened, I, got, I, got, I was ill for a very, very bad flu about, I suppose it was about 13 years ago. And in the fairly relatively early days of Amazon, when, when you got ill, you immediately ordered a few books. And I happened to order a few very, very timely books. I think there was a Tim Harford one called The Logic of Life. Uh, there was an excellent book by Robert Frank, who's actually coming to Nudgestock on uh, June the 7th in Folkestone, which is our behavioral science festival. That was called The Economic Naturalist. And I was a very big fan as a big kind of Darwinist nut. Um, very interested in sort of evolutionary theory and evolutionary biology. I was very taken by the notion of looking at business as a kind of ecosystem rather than looking at it as a machine. One of the things I then discovered is there's always in any room full of economists, there's always this one Austrian school devotee who's sitting at the back, grumpy. And my contention is that they're pretty much right about everything. The interesting thing, of course, is it's a fascinating story. I think I got interested because I was essentially told that the Austrians can't get anywhere in academia because they sort of refuse to use maths. It's a slight exaggeration to say this, but because they believe that preference is ordinal rather than cardinal, and they believe, you know, you can say that someone prefers a DVD player to a cassette player, but you can't say they prefer it 1.3 times as much. Right. And, and the whole, I suppose what I discovered is that the whole Austrian idea of praxeology was really um, a forerunner of what you might call behavioral economics. So obviously, I got interested in economics, and you can't fail to be impressed by the elegance of the subject. But you, as an advertising person, you can't also fail to notice the extraordinarily low importance it attaches to what you do through this assumption that everybody already knows what they want and what they're prepared to pay for it. And also the idea, by the way, of course, that uh, your preference is entirely individually determined, which in a social species like humans seems unbelievably ridiculous, you know, patently uh, your status, for example, depends on you know your relative wealth, not your absolute wealth. So it struck me that economics was making some really dumb assumptions, where in, in, in its defense, in understanding, as the Austrian school does, that praxeology, which you might call, I think, I think they call economics the study of praxeology under conditions of scarcity, if I'm right. And at least in understanding that economics should be subordinate to psychology, as a discipline, the Austrians got one really, really big thing right. There's a limit to how far you can go on Austrian blogs because they get obsessed with the gold standard and stuff, which I'm sure they're right about, but I mean, it's just not my field of, of obsession. But in the whole thing about praxeology and in that uh, von Mises book on human action, where he makes the point, which is brilliant, and I make this point to advertising people and they are aghast at it, which is sad, really, I make the point, he says, that there's no useful distinction to be made by the value created in a restaurant by the man who cooks the food and the value created by the man who sweeps the floor. And by the man who sweeps the floor, he explicitly means advertising and marketing. That the value of something is a product of what it is 
and how it is presented and how it is perceived. And you can produce Michelin-starred food in a restaurant that smells slightly of sewage and no one will enjoy the meal. And in the same way, you right. can produce an ostensibly brilliant product and fail to market it or communicate it or position it in the right way, and you can destroy billions of pounds of potential economic value. It does strike me that the ratio of time that businesses spend uh, looking at cost saving and efficiency gains, essentially treating business as a machine in, in relation to the amount of time they spend looking for, in particular, but not exclusively, uh, psychological opportunities. That in other words, there's a kind of McKinseyitis spreading through business, uh, which is all about you know gains to scale and cost reduction. Now, not not that that activity has been worthless by any means, but there is a limit to how long you can go on pursuing it. Is the internet a threat or an opportunity or both when it comes to the world of advertising? It's very it's very interesting you ask this because. Again, I think what has happened is the internet, by the way, very, very efficiently replaces certain forms of advertising. So, you know, it won't have escaped your notice that classified advertising in newspapers is in decline. Uh, you know, if you're, for example, auto trader or exchange and mart, all that kind of exchange has pretty much moved online. Okay. And that and that I don't think is, you know, I don't think that's reversible. I don't think that's going to change any day soon. So you see Gumtree and for that matter, eBay, and you see, for example, Airbnb or Amazon. I mean, a great deal of the popularity of those entities is the extent to which they reduce search costs. They can create other problems, by the way, which is simply a surfeit of choice. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's very noticeable that on Amazon or on eBay, if you search for something, they find it quite difficult for you to click to page two of the search results. And mm. my assertion there, by the way, is, is that what Amazon's found is that if you search for toaster and you get onto page three of their toaster results, then you've now been presented with so many fucking toasters, you're never going to buy one of them <laughs> because you're just in a state of total bamboozlement. Okay. So, you know, but... You know, in the case of cases where the buyer is actively searching for something, then it's hardly surprising that Google in particular has been highly disruptive and that eBay and Amazon and all those other examples, which are, of course, search engines in their way as well. You know, I mean, you could look at Amazon and you could look at eBay and say it's predominantly a specialist search engine. You know, it's not surprising that in, in the cases where humans are actively searching to buy something, and of course, you might you might extend that to dating as well. With uh, you know, you could say that Tinder and Grinder are both specialist search engines in a way. Yeah. Now, um, but if you really extend the analogy, Uber is as well in a funny kind of way. But um, you know, they're just reducing the costs of my finding something that I knew I wanted. But there's another kind of advertising which is slightly, well, significantly different, which is how you establish brand mm -hmm. reputation, how you establish widespread fame, how you establish trust as well, by the way. Um, and that form of advertising is different. And I think the industry has made a mistake, which is they've assumed that the great thing you do with the internet is you make advertising more efficient, which in the case of search advertising is pretty much right. You know, people wanted to do it, so they'll now do it by a more effective means. In the case of actually establishing the fame, reputation, popularity, or um, trust of something people weren't actively looking for, um, the rules are different. 
And I think that the quest for efficiency there has been overblown because in many ways, I think um, conventional advertising works through a kind of costly signaling and that actually the very indiscriminate nature of the targeting of the communication, the expense of the transmission and indeed the expense care or other scarce goods that have been lavished into the creation of the message are as much the raison d'etre of the communication as the actual information it contains. And that's the difference between what you might call messaging and signaling. You know, messaging is, you know, I'm, you know, we are two military people in the field. We trust each other completely. How do we exchange information as efficiently as possible? Signaling is how do I convince the other person that what I have to say is significant, believable, and worthy of their attention. And they're not the same thing. Like a wedding invitation would come in the post or something like that. You said exactly that, yeah. And actually, of course, significantly, we make our wedding vows in front of a large crowd of people simultaneously, which is the kind of personal equivalent of a mass medium. We don't go door to door with our wedding vows because a promise is much more convincing if it's made in a public space because it only takes one person to contradict you. A lot of the dynamics of, the, of how you use communication to convince rather than how you use communication to inform or to respond to a request, the rules are fundamentally different. And the problem with Silicon Valley is being full of engineers, they tend to look at everything as if it's an efficiency optimization problem. Fascinating. With that, what would you say about big data and the dangers of big data potentially? Well, if you come, uh, this is not just a total plug for Nudgestock on June the 7th, by the way, in Folkestone. Um, but um, if you come, you'll see a speaker called Trisha Wang, uh, who is one of the digital anthropologists who tried to rescue Nokia from its decision, which was based on very large amounts of big data, not to launch a smartphone until four years after the iPhone had been launched. Now, that decision, aided and abetted by a lot of management consultants, was based on an enormous number of data points which said, essentially, the amount of money people in the developing world will spend on a mobile phone handset has a ceiling. And therefore, there's no point in launching a smartphone until smartphones are cheap enough for, you know, I don't know, an extra billion people to be able to afford them. And they had an enormous amount of data that proved their case. And this was bolstered by a firm of management consultants who said the same thing. Trisha Wang was working with, I think with refugees in China, by which I mean people pretty much in the bottom billion of the world's poor. And she reported back and said, once the phone in question is a smartphone, all these rules change. And people are actually prepared to spend an enormous amount of disposable income on what is effectively an iPhone knockoff. Now, the point I made is that all big data suffers one problem. It all comes from the same place, the past. Okay? Now, all the data they had, which told you how much people were prepared to spend on a mobile phone handset, referred to a feature phone something which could text and make phone calls and on which you could play snake, okay? Right. As soon as you introduced the smartphone, which remember for the world's poorest half was not only a phone, it was also the internet. You know, suddenly they had access to the internet as well. All those rules changed. And the great problem with big data is that single black swan events, you, essentially it's driving through looking at the rearview mirror. Right. The smartphone you might call here a black swan event. 
But equally, a really interesting form of advertising or repositioning can render everything you believe to be true wrong overnight. You know, or a new entrant, a new competitive entrant could do the same. You know, a new market entrant could, you know, I mean, a beautifully put by an advertising planner friend of mine called Lee Taylor, who used to say that, you know, if you look at the disruptive power of low cost airlines, he, he used to use this fantastic sentence. Do you want to go to Budapest? No, it's 45 quid. I'm going to Budapest. <laughs> and that's kind, of, that's kind of how it worked. You know, everybody basically, yeah. I mean, we have a very strong thing, which I'm really interested in, called adaptive preference formation, which is, to some extent, we like the things we can do disproportionately. We dislike the things that we can't do. Aesop spotted this with the fox and the grapes. And when we thought the Budapest was 250 quid, we didn't really want to go to Budapest because what was the point of wanting it when you couldn't afford to do it anyway? And so, you know, certain things can create so much disruption in a market that building, that actually building your map of the world on pre-existing data is arguably a slightly dangerous thing to do. So we could say that the volume of data points is not equal to the value of those data points. No, um, because uh, you're vulnerable. First of all, you're also very vulnerable. I've just written a piece in the Specky about this. You're also very vulnerable to... Um, cognitive errors, because how you look at that data determines what you infer from it to an enormous degree. And so, for example, it's much, much easier for people at the top. People at the top of an organization tend to have aggregated data from lots of sources. And it also tends to be snapshot data rather than um, what you longitudinal data, panel data. Now, though, what you remember is that we tend to think more data means better information. Actually, the more you aggregate data together, the act of aggregation destroys information because the really telling information might be at the fringes or it might be at the extremes. But by adding lots of things together, you're left with this kind of blurry average. And by the way, the mid-market might not even exist. It'd be very easy you know, if you took the average of Aldi and... Um, <laughs> and Louis Vuitton, okay, you'd actually, you'd have some appalling information about what consumers wanted. I mean, genuinely awful information by, by adding it together. Just as this guy, extraordinary guy, actually, who is a kind of um, anthropologist and whatever the science of human body measurement is, and I keep forgetting what it's called, um, anthropometrics, I guess, or something like that. He discovered when they were designing cockpits for US pilots that there's virtually nobody who's an average body type. Once you get beyond about three or four dimensions, um, you know, once you're measuring forearm length and, you know, foot size and leg length and thigh length and, you know, uh, torso length, the number of people who are average on more than about three or four other 10 dimensions is vanishingly small. And so wow. you can very, very easily get misled by averaging because you, you assume, you know, there may be a gap in the market, but is there a market in the gap? As one fantastic phrase has it. Um, but also there's another problem, uh, which is that um, actually snapshot data is, is almost irrelevant. Now, here's an interesting story. This is what I'm just writing about in the specy, which is you've all believed the story, haven't you, that um, essentially in the United States, uh, the poorest 10% and indeed the poorest quartile have barely improved their living standards at all over kind of 25 years, whereas the richest 1% yeah. have got richer and richer and richer. That's the accepted wisdom. 
have got. And Piketty wrote a huge, great book about that, basically that kind of shit, right? Now, the yeah. only point is that it's sort of true, but here's the really important point from my marketing point of view. The people who are getting it, the top decile in 1984 and the top decile in 1994 and the top decile in 2014, they're not the same people. So, yes, those deciles are getting richer, but actually what you're finding is that people are moving from the poorest quartile to the next one up with quite a lot of frequency. Now, what matters to the quality of human life is not how, how rich you're, the decile you're born in happens to be in 20 years' time. It's how rich you are in 20 years' time. What's extraordinary about that is that quite a lot of the apparent poverty might be created by simply having more elderly people who aren't working, okay? More, more retired people will therefore increase the apparent poverty of the poorest quartile, say. Uh, students might well be increasing it. Now, I don't know how they, they gather the data, but it'd be perfectly possible, you see, to define a trainee barrister as being in the poorest quartile of the population. Now, no one would think of a trainee barrister as being poor because the, you know, the bastard's going to be living in a house made of gold in 30 years' time, okay? But nonetheless, um, you know, let's say you, you could have a world, literally, where everybody was getting richer over time but where every single decile of the population was getting poorer over time. And you can equally have the opposite. You can have a world where every decile was getting richer, potentially, but where everybody got poorer in the course of their life. Now, the fact that, the fact that measures of wealth aren't accounting for the most obvious facet of capitalism, which is that people get richer as they get older, People get paid more by and large as they get older because you, you have more time to discover what you're uniquely good at and you have more time to get better at it, okay? Now, by the way, I'm not making a right-wing point here. I have to make the same caveat in the specky. I'm not saying, look, these people are idiots. There isn't any poverty. Patently, there are people who are stuck in the poorest decile and there are people who are stuck in the poorest quartile. But if you concentrated your redistributive efforts at them, you could solve the problem much more efficiently through looking at life as it's really lived in real time, which is all that matters to people. You know, I was undoubtedly in the poorest quartile of the population for the first six or seven years of my working life. It would have been ridiculous, really, to describe me as poor. So the point is that even fairly trivial failings in how you look at data and simply the bias that's caused by the fact that snapshot data is easier to assemble than longitudinal data and much less costly um, to assemble and indeed much, much quicker to assemble and much easier to analyze. That's, you know, that's creating... Now, the interesting thing as a marketer, I suddenly realized this. I always turn up in, uh, and talk to people in business and they look at me as if I'm a bit weird. I mean, they're not hostile, but they you know, it's kind of a fucking weird take. No, I'm not sure I can quite trust him. And then, of course, I realized that the one great thing that marketing teaches is you tend to look at any problem through the eyes of a person experiencing it in real time. Because you're actually, you know, focused on the customer's perception of what happens. Whereas most people who are senior in organizations are looking at aggregate information that doesn't include the importance of time and also is very, very heavily averaged. And so it strikes me that the very act of marketing and advertising is hugely valuable in creative terms, even if you never produce any advertising, simply because it's an exercise in forcing you to say, how would this... Now, I'll give you a lovely example of this, okay? Here's my psychological solution 
um, my um, my solution to train overcrowding. Okay, let's say you're a railway company and you're looking at train overcrowding as a problem. And the information you get is aggregate information, and you define train overcrowding as now, I'm not talking about four-hour train journeys here. Yeah, I want to be clear about this. Standing on a four-hour train journey is a total pain in the ass, and it's not acceptable. I'm talking about commuter journeys, okay, or say tube right. journeys, right? Now, the interesting question, if I travel in a, on about a 35-minute train journey most days into London. Now, the interesting question there is that all that data is looking at all overcrowding as being equally unacceptable, Right? Because it's not looking at it through a psychological lens. Now, my argument is very simple, okay, which is, hold on, there will always be some overcrowding on trains. You know, there'll be a soccer match on, so people travel home disproportionately early, so that three trains are more crowded than usual and three trains are less crowded than usual. You know, that kind of stuff. If you try and prevent all overcrowding, essentially, uh, you'll just have a huge amount of surplus capacity and will cost you billions of pounds. Right. On the other hand, what happens if you distinguish between now all those models which are aggregate don't distinguish between 10 people who have to stand 10% of the time and one person who has to stand 100% of the time. Now, I would argue having to stand 10% of the time if you're a commuter is just meh, shit happens. Having to stand 100% of the time is cause to be really angry, right? Yes. Now, if you simply said, okay, um, as you get closer to London, where the trains get more crowded, every day from, let's say, Tunbridge or Tunbridge Wells to Charing Cross, we will run two trains in each direction, which are exclusively for annual or quarterly season ticket holders. Or we will make first class on the trains much bigger, but annual and quarterly season ticket holders will have the right to sit in first class. Now, you'll lose a small amount of revenue there from first class season ticket holders. I suppose you could create a super bling first class for those people if you wanted to. But nonetheless, you could solve 90% of the problem at 10% of the cost because you're disaggregating the information and you're looking at the solution in, through a psychological lens, not through a network optimization lens. Right. Flipping the problem through 90 degrees provides you with an opportunity to solve the problem. So you don't have to spend a fortune on improving your network. You just change the solution. And do you know the really funny thing about this, which is I, I mentioned it. One very interesting thing about a lot of solutions in, in business is someone's already solved your problem, but in a different domain. And the human brain is very bad in carrying over a solution from one domain to another. I jokingly said, funnily, you know, I was slightly late for this video conference this morning. And I've always said, look, the way to do a video conference or a telephone conference, if you want people to turn up on time, is you model it on the, the Edwardian dinner party invitation, which is 7.30 for 8. If you have a telephone conference, don't make it at 4 p.m. Make it 3.50 for 4. Because then people will turn up a, a bit early. They'll, they've got 10 minutes to dick around with their dial-in codes and their webcam or whatever. They've got 10 minutes to make small talk. And then the meeting starts in earnest at 4 p.m. And in the same way, if you look at this train solution, someone pointed out to me, well, British Airways already does that. I said, well, what are you talking about? They said, well, look, if you, if you fly to Frankfurt once a year in economy, you'll basically have an economy experience, okay? If you fly to Frankfurt 30 times a year in economy, after about 20 trips or so, you'll get upgraded to the silver card. And although you'll still be sitting in an economy seat, 
your check-in experience, your lounge experience, your boarding experience will be that of a business class passenger. Interestingly, what's also interesting about my suggestion is, A, it will actually probably allow you to police um, uh, first class rather better, um, which might then bring in more first class revenue as well, if first class is better policed. But secondly, here's the really interesting thing. Um, and I, I, I genuinely mean this. I mean, you can solve the problem very, very inexpensively. In other words, there's another benefit to it as well. Fairness. So I asked a bunch of people, um, you know, who don't have season tickets. I myself don't have a season ticket. You know, um, uh, I don't bother because, you know, it doesn't really pay. Um, I said, um, uh, how, do you think this is fair? And people without people with season tickets obviously like the idea. People without season tickets go, no, that's perfectly fair. If I go to a, and eat in a restaurant every week, I expect a better table. If I travel on a train every day, I expect a better seat. Right. Such a good solution. It's uh, any wonder why they wouldn't implement it. Well, I mean, uh, I think there's something going on here. Uh, I don't know if you follow a guy called Ole Peters at the London Mathematical Laboratory, but he and Alex Adamu and some collaborators are looking at this whole issue of uh, what's ergodic and what's non-ergodic. And they believe there's a fundamental flaw in all economic theory, which is it fails to consider um, what happens over time. And I think nearly all data models are actually really, really bad at understanding time. So, for example, um, if you think about economics, okay, um, economics, um, let, let's look at Amazon Prime. Why do you need to have Amazon Prime? Well, very simply, if you don't have Amazon Prime, Amazon can't have any frequent customers. And that's because 10 people don't mind paying three quid for delivery once a month, but one person isn't going to pay three quid for delivery 10 times a month. Why? And I think an awful lot of models we're using multiply things where they shouldn't be multiplying them. You know, I mean, if you you know, if you if you looked at, I mean, I don't know what econ, you know, what economics would do with that. It would say, okay, well, there's, a, you know, I don't know, delivery cost is a transaction cost. Which I don't know what it would say, but it would assume that the utility of delivery in the human brain doesn't distinguish between you know paying three quid for delivery once a month and paying three quid for delivery ten times a month. Well. I'm afraid, you know, if you're paying three quid for delivery 10 times a month on Amazon, you're going to say, look, okay, this is 30 quid a month. It's time for me to rediscover Walmart, really, aren't you? Yeah. And there seems yeah. to be an enormous... I mean, I've made this point about High Speed 2 as well. Look, High Speed 1, Crossrail, um, Thameslink are all brilliant ideas, okay? And by the way, I get really pissed off, although I'm often seen as a rail critic, I get really pissed off with people criticizing a small delay and cost overrun to Crossrail, because Crossrail is really, really game-changingly important. And the fact that we can do something that ambitious and people just whine in the Daily Mail because it comes in trivially late is, to, to my mind, utterly pathetic. You know, of course, you know, of course, there are going to be costs and problems with something of that insane complexity. How can we as a country do anything of any ambition whatsoever if people wimp out at the first sign of a, you know, a minor problem? But my point about high speed two is that high speed three would be a really good idea because lots of people would use high speed three to go from Manchester to Leeds. They'd use it 50 times a year, 100 times a year, 150 times a year. High speed one, you live in Canterbury, you commute into London. High speed one saves you one hour, 200 times a year. That's a game-changing change, okay? London to Manchester on high speed two effectively doesn't save one person 
an hour 200 times a year, it's much closer to saving 200 people an hour once a year. Now, the models on which all transport investment is predicated assumes that one times seven is the same as seven times one. It assumes that, as I jokingly said, commuting is commutative. But let's be honest about this, okay? Um, you know, I mean, I'm exaggerating it. You know, it, there are also, you know, uh, 30 people saving an hour four times a year. And there, you know, there will be a few people who might travel from Manchester to London once a week, but not that many. That's, say, you know, four people saving uh, an hour 50 times a year. But the simple fact is a single person saving 200 hours a year is a life-changing event. It also completely transforms property prices in Canterbury and creates a huge amount of value there because now Canterbury is a commutable town. Okay, In the case of High Speed 2, what you've created is a convenience for lots of people rather than the game-changer for, uh, for fewer people. As a result, uh, rather like the Concorde, that actually people didn't travel on it frequently enough for it to really be worth it. So the man who traveled the most on Concorde in his entire life, he was on the first flight and the last flight. He basically, the Concorde saved him enough time that was equivalent to, I think, 15 minutes off his commute. And that was the most frequent Concorde user of (laughs) all. Okay. So, I mean, you know, even he was only using it sort of, I don't know, 20 or 30 times a year. So the time saving just wasn't impressive enough per, per, per user to make it all that significant. And the fact that we, right. the mathematical models don't distinguish between the, the, what you might call the, the one dimension and the other dimension seems to me an extraordinarily dangerous facet of these models and the extraordinary influence they exert. Because it, one of the first things they do is when you aggregate you, and, and when you remove time, you, you remove the possibility of using psychology as a solution rather than using infrastructure. You mentioned psychology and you, you mentioned trust earlier. We, you get the feeling that we're, we may be at almost like peak, peak insanity in terms of the, the Brexit process and we may be into Theresa May's final hours. If Ogilvy had been tasked with selling the implementation of Brexit, to, to the UK people, how would you have gone about doing that? Well, one of them, one of the reasons I've become, I voted Remain, but I've almost become sympathetic with Brexit, is that it seemed evidence to me that we have a governmental class that's completely lost the ability to negotiate. Mm. Um, the first thing I would have done is I would have started on the basis of Canada Plus and negotiated from there, because you have to have a clear line in the sand, and it would be very difficult logically for the EU to deny you a a deal at least as good as Canada's, because it would make very visible the fact that they were being malicious. Why do you think so many people have, I would say, collectively lost their marbles over this this, this journey? Um, one thing is, I um, I don't believe that the economic cost of a no-deal Brexit would be all that great, particularly since we have control of our own currency and so forth. Uh, but if you're an economist and you view life entirely through the lens of efficiency, anything that diminishes efficiency is is seen as uh, as an absolute disaster. And the kind of McKinseyites who are obsessed with only two things, scale and efficiency, see this as a retrograde step because all they believe in is scale and efficiency. And this means smaller scale and slightly lower efficiency. So they're driven into complete conniptions by this. I would argue... First and foremost, I'd argue that the role of efficiency and scale compared to the value of genuine innovation in in economies is relatively trivial. 
the really important thing that drives economic progress and human well-being is inventiveness and invention. Uh, it isn't sort of incremental improvements in, in this and that. You know, those are nice, but they're not decisive. They may be important as a secondary thing, but that, that's my first point, which is relative to kind of gen, you know, other factors. Uh, those two things, I think, get too much attention simply because they're quantifiable in models, um, whereas you know, inventiveness isn't. Uh, it's much harder to do the maths in terms of, uh, um, I think it's called endogenous growth theory, if I'm right. It's worth remembering, of course, that businesses will adapt very quickly. Indeed, businesses will be created. I mean, one possible view from a behavioral point of view is that this might actually increase the British exports in the medium to long term. And the reason for this is people who trade with Europe but don't trade with the rest of the world will now have to master paperwork, which is essentially the same paperwork they need to master to export to everywhere outside Europe. So having actually made that step and worked out how you fill out a bill of lading or whatever the claiming thing's called, they will then go, well, yeah. shit, now I'm doing all this shit to send stuff to France. I might as well send some shit to India and the United States as well. It's perfectly possible for things to work in the opposite direction to that which economists believe. Because the whole act of economics is trying to create an avoidance of ambiguity akin to Newtonian physics in fields where it has no place. Sorry, do you oh. think party politics can survive the, uh, the wrenching problems that Brexit thrown at it? It's a very interesting question. I think with a change of leader, you can probably do that. I also think you need, um, personally, I think there's been a disgraceful, it's, well, it also reveals the extent to which government thinking is overly dominated by lawyers and not game theorists. So one perfectly sensible thing is, look, you sign up to May's deal and then you game the fuck out of the backstop. You know? And to be honest, you know, as an independent uh, military power, there's a hell of a lot you could do. And you could break international law if you wanted to anyway. What are they going to fucking do? Invade you? Okay? <laughs> no, seriously, you know, you could, you know, I mean, just tell the Irish, yeah, yeah that's fine, but we're just going to turn off your gas supplies. I mean, the wussiness of the governmental class is unbelievable, you know. I mean, what would Palmerston do? You know, you have other tools at your disposal other than legalistic and economic solutions. And yet the entire um, mode of government thinking seems to be totally dominated by uh, essentially lawyers and economists. Um, Richard Thaler said something very similar. He said, government is run by lawyers who occasionally ask economists for help. Anyone else interested in helping the lawyers need not apply. I mean, you know, we've got to, you know, what, what the hell's the point of having Trident? You know, if you're terrified of, you know, a bunch of Europeans, uh, you know, with some sort of legal stuff. And the second thing is you'll yeah. never out-argue a Frenchman anyway because they're Jesuitical Platonist fuckers. So the thing is just to <laughs> sign up to whatever they want you to sign up to and then use essentially piracy and cunning to to win <laughs> in retrospect. Perfidious Albion. Yeah, no, no, we should be perfidious. That's exactly what we should be doing. Yeah, totally right. Uh, and, uh, you know, no, you know, if their conditions are unreasonable, no one blames you for doing it. This happened before, didn't it, with a treaty with France in the... Uh, I think it's in the 18th century, wasn't it? Where they accused us of breaking the terms of the treaty, but we said that their implementation of the treaty was stupid. I, I, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, as I said, I voted Remain, but I find the evidence of wussy thinking within government quite surprising. Um, also, and also the, the, the level of deference to kind of like weird uh, authorities, including economic authorities, 
I mean, you don't genuinely, if, if you, I would prefer to go with the deal, okay, because I think it's a smoother transition. I don't accept the assumption. I think there's a risk to a, to a hard Brexit, but the assumption that it would necessarily be all that painful um, is uh, highly dubious. And I also, you know, well, it's, I, it's not really, it's not really credible, given that it's come from people who made outrageous forecasts that never turned out to have any bearing on reality the first time around. Well, of course, you want to remember they're gaming it as well, because if you talk to sane people in business, there are an awful lot of people in business who go, "No, it won't affect us," and you go, "Well, why not?" They say, "Well, we're an international company already. If you can trade with Russia and Nigeria, you're not going to have that much problem filling in a few forms uh, to get something across Europe." Okay. Yeah. The companies that will be affected are those that only trade with Europe or those with incredibly complicated supply chains. Um, you might argue those supply chains are too sodding complicated to begin with. You might also argue, by the way, that uh, if, if you have to take, as I'm briefly step into a slightly Marxist frame of mind, all those bastards didn't have money-grubbing bastard businesses, never had any difficulty reorganizing their supply chains when it saved them 17p per unit to move manufacturing from the UK to some low-cost country 2,000 miles away, did they? They didn't seem to find that mm. difficult at all when it saved them 17p. Mm. Okay? Good point. You know, you know, the extent to which people went, oh, oh, look, we're making 500 call centre workers redundant in Scotland so we can move them to India, despite the fact that the customer experience was made inordinately worse and that they measured simply yeah. the, they measured effectively the, co the visible co savings from that, but not the, um, uh, uh, the less visible costs. All those companies proved perfectly adept at uh, essentially money-grubbing actions where you essentially don't feel any obligation to manufacture or create employment in the country where most of your customers are based. Now, I, you know, I, you know, I'm not a Quaker or anything, but I think, you know, you do have some sort of obligation to your employees. I don't, I, you know, this shareholder value movement thing is a totally kind of aspergic approach to business. And it's, it, it's perfect for the kind of people who can't cope with any ambiguity. So, and and that, that's the problem with economics, really. The whole thing, it will distort reality. To It's a bit like the tube map, okay? The tube map provides fantastic clarity, but at a cost of appalling accuracy. And what happens with the tube map, and this is what has happened with economics, in a sense, is the tube map, which isn't a map, it's a schematic diagram. Now, the tube map is a very, very good schematic diagram of the tube. It's not a very good map of the tube because it's totally unfaithful to geography and distance. But if you want to know how the tube lines interlock, it does a pretty good job. It does a very bemusing job because the most popular tourist journey in London is uh, between Covent Garden and Leicester Square, which is a distance, really, where you could throw a tennis ball pretty much between the two stations. But, of course, you know, tourists don't know that, so they'd go all the way down, travel a minute distance by train, and then re-emerge 200 yards away. Uh, it also, by the way, contains psychological distortions, the tube map. The central line is overused because it's a straight line and it goes horizontally, more or less, the Victoria line, which is the fastest line of the lot, is underused because it goes diagonally and wiggle in a, in a wiggly way. So we think of the central line as being faster than it is and the Victoria line as being slower, and that distorts patterns of behavior. And then you get even worse distortions, mm. which is trains don't appear on it. So not even Thameslink appears on the fucking tube map. 
So when we moved to Blackfriars, I kept getting these colleagues going, oh, my journey into work is a bit difficult because I get into St Pancras. I'm going to go all the way around the circle line. I go, you fucking idiot. No, you don't. You go down the escalator, sit at the front of the Thameslink train that comes in in four minutes, and it drops you off 50 yards from our door. Oh, I didn't know. I think these people are fucking idiots. And then I went and checked and realized that since my day, when I first moved to London in the late 80s, Thameslink was on the tube map. And some bastard at London, Transport for London, took it off, presumably because they don't get any money from people who travel on it, okay, or some other money-grubbing reason. And they removed Thameslink from the tube map. Now, of course, it's also worth remembering that the whole of South London really runs on railway lines, not on tube lines, because its geology is different and its topography is different. And those don't appear on the tube map. So people in North London effectively never move to South London because they think, oh, I've got to be on the tube. Well, no, if you're next to a really nice railway station in Herne Hill, you'll get into work in twice the speed. You'll get into in from Fulham, right? But the people in Fulham have this total delusion that they live in central London because they're on the tube. They don't. It's a fucking suburb of Oxford, right? And so it creates... Now, what, in, what always interests me is the extraordinary extent to which any presentation of information in order to achieve simplicity, also creates distortions. Right. And the tube map, you know, if you think about it, because the tube, the, because the central line is red and um, it looks as if it's in a straight line and it goes from right to left or left to right, you could end up investing to solve overcapacity on, on the central line when actually all you needed was to change the representation on the map to make the central line a bit less appealing and to make, say, the overground or the Piccadilly line or something more appealing. And this is the strange thing, which is that the weirdest thing of all about uh, both businesses and government, and this is a poisonous effect of, of economics, by the way. You see, economics assumes that the only way you can, uh, uh, you can imp non-Austrian, I'll let the Austrians off the hook here. So, so non-Austrian, i.e. shit, economics, assumes that the only way... The only way you can improve someone's perception, valuation, and quality of life is by changing objective reality, because it assumes that our perception is objective and that we know exactly what we want and how much utility we'll derive from anything. Now, the cheapest and most effective and the most environmentally friendly way to create economic value is to create it psychologically, not materially. Make something really cool, and you make something much more valuable without needing to destroy any um, scarce commodities to produce it, and without without the cost and trouble of actually. So, you know, the first place to look is not actually is in our mental software. That's the first place to tinker. You should only start worrying about uh, hardware much much later. But the strange thing about government, because it's poisoned by this. You know, it's failed to understand the uh, the message of von Mises that actually perception is a source of value and as a sort perception drives behavior. Okay, so essentially, okay, what you have now, I'll give you the if you don't believe in this, if you say I think it's completely wrong to cheat the failings and distortions of human perception in order to create a better perceived reality without creating a better absolute reality, then you have to throw away your television because your television is a total psychological cheat. The reason it can produce a whole spectrum of colors from only three types of LED is because 
humans along with i think higher some higher primates like gorillas have three sets of cones in their eyes which are sensitive to three bits of the light spectrum and all your tv has to do is recreate those three bits of the light spectrum and your brain does the rest of the work it produces the rest of the spectrum right right rgb color mixing is a biological phenomenon it's not a physical phenomenon if you mix red and green photons you don't get yellow photons but if you fire equal amounts of red and green photons at the human eye, it makes a punt on the fact that what it's seeing is yellow. So it gives you a reasonable banana. Okay. Now, my view is that what televisions do, you could view as a total cheat and a sleight of hand. And, and, but if you tried to produce a television that actually produced the entire color spectrum that would satisfy a physicist, um, it would cost you billions and billions of pounds and probably you know have pixels the size of your thumb. So... It's a really, really important point that um, uh, that government and and indeed business, because it swallowed this total economic bullshit wholesale, um, it's it's obsessed with scale and efficiency because under economic theory that's how you make life better, and so it suffers from this kind of McKinseyitis where you know a bunch of consultants come in with an engineering mentality and just try and improve things. Often, by the way, making human experience, customer experience worse as part of the process. And you also create this crippling thing in both in government and in business, where in order to improve things, you have to change the reality, otherwise it's cheating. Well, in that case, you know, Toshiba and Samsung are the biggest cheats going. You have a book coming out, Rory. Would you like to say something yeah, about it's, that? Yeah, it's, it's precisely about this. It's called Alchemy, subtitled The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. And one of the things, it takes this point and goes even further. One person at the Adam Smith Institute described it as an extreme Hayekian point of view, um, which you'll probably be pleased with. You, you, you're a bit Hayekian, are you guys? I'm, I'm certainly inclined to the Austrian school. But the point was that um, actually, never mind the whole problem of information, People actually don't know what they want, um, nor can they voice what they want. All you can do to discover what people want is an experimental process of making things available and seeing what people buy. So revealed preference is the only meaningful form of preference. Market research doesn't really work because the parts of our brain that do the wanting and the deciding aren't really connected to the parts of the brain that do the talking and the rationalization. Well, that's like also that's like what Henry Ford said, where where when he said if 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 they'd you know, if I'd listened to the listened they would have asked for a faster horse. Faster horse. But I go even further than that, and I actually say that people don't even know why they like the things they own and like. If it, that actually, you know, I I don't own it. By the way, I have to explain this. I don't own any denim. Okay, don't own a single item of denim, and I can't understand denim. I, genu I genuinely don't understand it, okay? If you ask me to explain why denim is a popular fabric, when it seems to have fairly marked disadvantages in terms of comfort, fading, you know, being hot in hot weather, uh, not being particularly flexible, you know, given the uh, level of attainment we seem to have reached in artificial fibers, or indeed the low-cost production of silk, everybody in the Middle Ages would have predicted that working men would have gone around in silk clothes, right? But for some reason, denim is huge. I don't know. I can't. I mean, Jesus. I mean, who would have? Uh, and similarly, Red Bull. Okay, Red Bull kind of tastes horrible. You know, no one would have said, okay, we need to compete with Coca-Cola. We need to produce a drink that's more expensive than Coke, comes in a smaller can than Coke, and tastes horrible.
right? No one would have said that. And yet it's this fantastic success. And I'm actually saying that business is throwing away opportunities by failing to be more random, that it believes that you should only test those things which you can post-rationalize in retrospect. So as well as being a Hayekian, I think this also makes me a methodological anarchist. I don't know if you've ever read a book, fun enough, by another Austrian, but not an Austrian economist, called Paul Feyerabend, and he's, his book's called Against Method. And he essentially says, as a philosopher of science, that the scientific method is merely used to dress up your process in retrospect to make your discovery look as though it were attained through um, some sort of uh, rigorous process, when in truth it's luck post-rationalised. I've not read it, but I can completely understand it because many of the great inventions that we've seen in the world have come, It's something's been invented and then you found afterwards exactly what you're going to use it for. No, absolutely. And um, you also have that strange thing, I think, where I would even go further and say that in many cases, actually, inventions aren't even very useful, that they survive on human neophilia and the urge to show off. So there must have been a 10-year period where any car was really worse than a horse. But the reason people bought cars was because they wanted to show off to, you know, the opposite sex, the same sex, uh, their friends, their business rivals, or they simply loved, as Adam Smith points out, the intricacy of the device. That's bang on for the early mobile phones, isn't it? They were like bricks, weren't they? <laughs> and I mean, there's a theory in biology that the same thing happens, that the reason birds can fly is they evolved plumage first for display, and then it got bigger and bigger until, unlike the peacock, which invested in the rear spoiler, okay, <laughs> um, most other birds invested in their, side, in, their, in their side plumage, which then ended up with the incidental spin-off benefit that you could actually fly. Uh, so... Uh, if you look at your dishwasher, okay, if I had a conversation with you about your dishwasher, 99% of the conversation would be about how well it cleans plates and knives and forks. I would say 80% of the value of your dishwasher isn't that you don't have to do the washing up. It's that it keeps your dirty plates out of sight. So once you've finished a meal, you can put the bastard plates in the dishwasher and you don't smell them and you don't see them. But nobody talks about that because that's felt, that's that's not what the the conscious prefrontal cortex brain cares about. I mean, the prefrontal cortex, what do you got to remember about the way in which reason evolved in humans is it didn't evolve to be Stephen Hawking. It evolved to be George Carman, basically. It evolved to be a really good lawyer to assemble the case for, for your defense, hence the extraordinary degree to which we're... Um, uh, we suffer from selection bias in cherry-picking only the information which supports our case. By the way, that business about income inequality, that actually it isn't as bad as we think, right? That actually most people in the bottom, or very significant people in the bottom quartile will even end up in the richest quartile at some point in their life. One reason I think it's so widely disseminated is that the idea of people being stuck in poverty is true for one particular group, which is journalists. Think about it. If you're a print journalist and you're not on the Daily Mail, you're fucked, basically, right? You know, you would have been better off actually applying to become a <laughs> chimney sweep or an ostler in terms of, you know, uh, the likelihood of future well-paid employment. So one of the reasons journalists are really, really happy to promulgate this idea of people stuck in poverty, which is, by the way, true of some people. I'm not denying that. But let's solve the problem. Let's solve the problem for the people for whom it's a persistent problem. Let's not make the problem look bigger than it really is. By the way, I'd also make a left-wing suggestion. I think it's ridiculous that we tax income 
with no regard for what people have earned in the past or how much wealth they already have. So someone who is poor, who doesn't own a house, who has two kids, let's say, and suddenly ends up earning 50,000 quid a year. The fact that we tax them in the same way as we tax someone who's been earning 50,000 pounds a year for 10 years, already owns their house outright, and you know doesn't have any children, and has, you know I don't know, a pension worth half a million quid. The fact that we tax people who are enriching themselves on their income at exactly the same rate we tax people who are already rich seems to me utterly ridiculous. Yeah, I'd never thought of that. The tax system works on a snapshot basis, which is every year as a standalone year. Well, I mean, how unfair is that to people who basically have a fairly miserable life and then have one windfall, you know, versus people who essentially have, you know, this doesn't make any sense at all. So your present tax Mm -hmm. rate should be dependent both on how much wealth you've accumulated and indeed on, um, uh, you know, on what you earned in previous years. Okay, if you want to sum up the podcast, I can't remember, it's a guy called Alan Kay who said this. It's really, really simple. What the advertising industry, what marketing does, it's very simple. A change in perspective is worth 40 IQ points. That's all you need to know. That actually the ability to change perspective on things is far more valuable than raw intelligence if you want to solve a problem. And yet what we've got in our technocratic scumbag Davos elite is a bunch of people who are very high on intellectual brute force, but totally bereft of imagination. And the ability to change perception is also what drives innovation, which is completely like lateral yeah. thinking. I mean, most innovation is actually what you do to innovate in many cases. Is you go, everybody else assumes this category is all about X. I'm going to make it all about Y. And actually, if you make enough noise about why, why becomes much more important. So Steve Jobs was, everybody's talking about the objective technological specifications um, and capability of their product. I'm going to focus on how, how the products feel like when, they, when you're using them. Mm. He was the first person, well, not quite the first person, a friend of mine asked the same question in the very early days of the PC. Why have they got to be beige? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the PC was an item of domestic furniture. It was visible, right? Yeah. And until he came along, we always forget that. It was, I think it was one of Johnny Ives' first thing, which was that thing called the, was it called the iMac? That, it, it, it was yes. a cathode ray tube thing, okay. Yes, L- like sweets. Yeah. And it looked, it looked like sweets. It was the first time someone thought, actually, this is going to be placed in a domestic setting. You know, maybe not making it beige might be a good idea. <laughs> I think Steve Jobs said the back of it looked better than the front of the other guys. So brilliant bit of marketing there. Fantastic. Yeah. And of course, the yeah. back of it is what other people see when you're using it, by the way. Yeah. And it was the same computer that wasn't particularly working very well, and they just repackaged it. So that's another example of how you could use you know, advertising or, or thinking in a different way to sell something and give it a different perception. The day that came out, my boss went along and he went along to Curry's or something. And they said, do you want, you know, do you want finance? Do you want a discount? Do you want so-and-so? Do you want so-and-so? He just goes, no, just take my money. I'm taking this thing home right now. <laughs> Fantastic. Because it was the first time he'd been able to have a computer in his, like, he, uh, he's, he's a bit keen on the kind of Tizio lamps, is this chap. And, um, uh, and so it was the first time he could actually have something which, which added to his desk rather than detracting from it. So you, you founded the Behavioural Science Unit at Ogilvy. 
Um, what sort of things do you do there? Do you just run experiments of some kind? It sounds like an absolutely fascinating venture. Yeah, um, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a bit of a fraud because I'm a behavioral science impresario in that I was a classicist at university and only got into this stuff um, as a kind of hobbyist. But I, you know, I, have, I have had 12 years of it. This is another racket, by the way. Our education system is in, higher education is becoming signaling. It's becoming a credentialist yes. racket. And here's your solution, right? Okay. Um, okay. This is the most, econo- uh, most elementary fact in economics, okay? The reason markets work is because when you spend money on, on one thing, it's money you can't spend on something else, right? Okay? Now, right. if you told, I would do this, you said, instead of making it a student loan, you made it a loan for anything you like. What would people do with the 27000 well, to be absolutely honest, I think back when I was 18, I think I wouldn't have gone to Cambridge. I would have uh, bought a, a Ford Mustang V8, probably. But no. <laughs> okay. But the reason that universities are all insanely expensive is because you have this weird loan that you can only spend on universities, which means you effectively have to max it out. That's why property is so fucking expensive. It's not supply and demand. It's the fact that if I go into my bank and say, I want to borrow half a million quid to buy a house, they go, right, you are, here we go. If I say, I want to borrow half a million quid to buy IBM shares, they'd have a bloody fit, right? Mm. So the the extent to which that you have different terms for lending money for different things creates a monstrous market distortion. Now, if you said to young people, look, why don't you take this loan, depending on what you need, you you can hold 12 grand of it back to go to university later when you know what you want to study, okay? You can use five grand of it to try and start a business or to move, move to a new area where job prospects are better or whatever it may be. Then it would be a market in education. If you give people a loan and say you have to spend it on this one thing, it's not a market. It's a flaming race to the top. It's absurd. How people who claim to be economists can design something which is moronically, obviously fucking stupid. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Do a thought experiment, right? Okay, for your first job interview, the government does some work and says that a lot of poor people aren't very well dressed when they go to a job interview. So we're going to lend you £4,000, which you can only spend on interview clothing. Well, everybody's going to be turning up in bespoke Savile Row, aren't they? Because you've just created, essentially, you fueled an arms race. And you now get people going, oh, well, really, a PhD is the new MPhil, and a new MPhil is the new bachelor's degree. And so you're getting people who are just wasting huge swathes of their life. And as a brilliant Italian pointed out, I think, I said, if education is really about human capital and training rather than about uh, signaling. Why are nearly all degree courses the same length? And second question is, why has the time spent at university not been reduced by a third following the invention of Wikipedia? Okay. I was, you know, when I was doing classics at university, about 50% of my time, well, the time I spent academically inclined, about 50% of that time was spent looking for shit. You know, if you wanted to find out the dates of the Delian Confederacy, it was like two hours major pain in the ass. And now you can just type it in, you get the answer in, in 0.3 seconds. Well, why hasn't that caused a reduction in the amount of time people need to spend at university? Very good point. 
So the one thing that's been most disrupted in terms of efficiency, which is access to facts. Um, so the one industry which should have been, you know, uh, I'd also say should have been disrupted by everything from video conferencing to remote learning to podcasts, uh, God above. I mean, it, the thing has done nothing. The other thing is, by the way, about academia, my brother's an academic, he's an astrophysicist. The other thing I don't understand about these universities, right? I'm not totally, as a taxpayer, right? I'm not totally hostile to the idea of giving bright people a stack of money and saying, why don't you go and find some shit out, okay? But academics have paid a dismally small amount of money given their intelligence. And yet, when there's 80 million to spend on a new building, all these universities are right up there. And they're building these fucking gold-plated palaces well, the people working in them who might actually have, I mean, okay, Andre Geim, I'm not sure how useful it's going to prove to be, but Geim's discovery of graphene, okay? Yeah. That didn't take facilities. That actually took some pencil lead and some sellotape. In other words, you could have gone to Staples and you could have made that bloody, okay, he probably had a good microscope. Fair's fair, okay? Staples is off. Gone. It's gone, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, interestingly, um, you're absolutely right. So it, it's, it's rather a shame that because actually, I, I quite like sort of perving around stationery. You know, only <laughs> once a month or something, but just going in and you know buying unusual envelopes uh, is always a bit of a pleasure. That's denied me, but um, uh, but but it's um it's a really strange thing, which is that you know all these academics are flying at the back of the plane when they go to a conference. And yet, when it comes to spending sixty billion on some, you know, candy ass building, the money's there in a bloody heartbeat. I mean, it's completely dumb, isn't it? Definitely. If you, if we if you were on our, our fantasy desert island, I mean, clearly you're allowed to take a copy of your own book. If, if, if you're only allowed one other book to keep you entertained, or as a, a symbol of of what you've most enjoyed, or has been most useful to you in your career, what book would that be, Rory? Um, actually, I'll have to say the Economic Naturalist. Um, uh, it might have been, I mean, it might have been one of a few books on evolutionary, um, uh, just evolutionary science, um, because I think the the, bio, the biological mindset is a much better way. So what we do at the Ogilvy Behavioral Science Practice, in a sense, is we bring a biological and psychological mindset to the solution of, and, and, and equally important, the discovery of business problems and social problems and policy problems. And the result is that the change in perspective brings you 40 IQ points, which I think is a fair claim. And the vital thing you can do there is you can spot things that no one else spots. Because when you look at something through a different lens, you sometimes go, actually, this problem is much easier to solve than we thought. Or actually, it isn't a problem at all because X or whatever. So an example would be, I've just written about this, you know, why don't more people do science subjects at school? Well, part of the problem is humans like a degree of optionality. You can pick and choose between humanities subjects uh, in any way you like. You know, you can do, you know, probably you can probably end up even at university doing philosophy and film studies somewhere. If you want to do science, you've got to do at least three A-levels out of the big four, maths, physics, chemistry, biology. So you force people at 15 to make this totally asymmetrical decision, which is you either bet the entire farm on being a scientist or you keep your options widely open. That's yeah. hardly surprising. Now, what seems to be the case is one of the reasons fewer women do science subjects is because fewer women are bad at humanities, good at science. Quite a lot of men are good at science subjects, 
um, you might link this to the um, you know the instance of uh, certain you know you know the extreme male brain theory, and but I won't go there because it's controversial, and I'll get a lot of people shouting at me. Um, but nonetheless, there's there's a certain type of bloke who's who's good at science, pretty crap at at humanities subjects. Okay, there are far fewer women who exp- who express that uh, uh, because the women who are good at science tend to be pretty good at humanities as well. Now, the people, as a result, people who are good at both tend to, now, I could actually say that I went to an all-boys school, but that more or less was true. You know, the, the, the guy who was a very brilliant mathematician, also was a very brilliant historian, ended up going to read history. Mm. Okay. Uh, the people who um, either, now, when I say was very good at, or you can also, in person, liked, it may just be that the other, you know, the other people were actually quite good at history, they just didn't like it but they disproportionately like maths. That particular mind shape was more common among males, i.e. good at or and like maths, not good at stroke hate humanities. Um, uh, this is not saying that, that females are any worse at science subjects. It's merely that they're relatively, um, it, it's about comparative advantage, not, not, not advantage. Mm. And so that, you know, one of the things you can do is you can look at these problems. You suddenly realize that, the the problem with our and I'm, I'm suddenly a bit Trumpy and I'm a bit Trumpy actually I'm about ten percent Trumpy because at least he's got a different mindset to the sort of nerds who are put in charge of pretty much every single governmental problem and you know even though I think he's you know wrong dangerous narcissistic and everything else I can understand why people vote for him because they're tired of the old what is you know a group of highly intelligent people with only one thought style. Mm. I don't know what your view is as a podcaster. Are you are you vaguely sympathetic to Brexit? Hugely sympathetic to Brexit. Also, of course, there's a very there's a distorting thing, which is that um, this is really a decision for the amygdala. It's not a decision for the prefrontal cortex. So, for example, you can come up with all the economic arguments in the world, but if I ask now, Daniel Kahneman always criticizes this human habit of uh, of substituting an easier question for a more difficult question. I would argue that if you're trying to satisfy rather than maximize, there are two components to every form of human decision. There's what you might call maximizing the average outcome, okay, which is I want this thing to be as good as possible. And there's also minimizing the downside variance, which is however good this is, I don't want to take the risk of it being abjectly shit. Now, the best way to do the second one of those is via heuristics, not calculation. So let me give you an example. You're buying your first shitty secondhand car, right? Now, technically, you want a red car that's quite sporty and is a manual car and um, is, um, uh, you know, has stylish Recaro seats. What you end up doing is buying a car from your aunt which is an automatic in a hideous shade of beige with velour seats <laughs> and a brand of car that you really don't like very much. Why are you doing that? Because more important to you when you buy your first shitty car is not that it's exactly what you want. It's that it's not going to be a disaster. And therefore, your heuristic mode there is not to ask the question, what should have car, sort of car should I buy? It's to ask the question, who can I trust to sell me a car? And your aunt, if she knows her car is a bit unreliable and she doesn't like driving it and she knows it's actually, you know, due an MOT and she's put, you know, unlikely event that your aunt's put um, sawdust in the gearbox or something, right? Okay, she's not going to sell it to her nephew. She's going to sell it at auction. 
And my argument would be that all these people going burble, 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 European Union, burble, burble supply chain, this is a completely aspergic mode of argument. The idea that, that anything that doesn't come through the prefrontal cortex and anything that's incapable of neat verbal expression is not valid in argument. Uh, well, I think we're getting into Wittgenstein here, aren't we? Possibly. Now, the language of maximizing is much, much easier for humans to master than the language of downside variance reduction. I would argue, by the way, that most people buy brands without really being able to explain why, because mostly brands serve the purpose of minimizing downside variance. If you buy a Toshiba television, a Samsung television, okay, do you know it's the best television you can buy for $1,200? No. Okay. What you do know is if Samsung puts its name on, front, on the front of the TV, it has a lot to lose from selling a TV that's disproportionately shit. And the likelihood that the Samsung television is a crock of shit is considerably less than the likelihood that the television from someone you've never heard of is shit. Right. And we're using reputational skin in the game as a proxy for quality control. Now, okay, what I just explained to you took about 300 words, whereas I'm trying to buy the best television I can, okay, takes about nine. So it's much easier to explain one part of our mental process than it is to explain another part, which is the variance downside. Now, asking the question of the European Commission, do I trust these fuckers and think they have Britain's best interest at heart? And coming up with the answer, no, is a perfectly valid reason to leave the EU. The fact that it isn't quantifiable and the fact that economists don't understand it because presumably economists think that Guy Verhofstadt is a lovely man, okay, is irrelevant because it's fairly obvious to anybody looking at these people that it's basically uh, it's FIFA on steroids. And the reason to leave need not be that there need be no economic advantages to leaving, by the way. I think there will be some. And I think because business is highly adaptive, I think businesses will discover lots of opportunities. I, I've already trademarked poulet a la mode de piscine, so I can sell chlorinated <laughs> chicken under a French name and no one will care. Um, but... Um, <laughs> But the, po the, the point is that um, uh, the, the mere fear that the European Union um, puts you in an impossible position and that it's essentially blackmailing you, but because what it's always doing is it's offering trivial economic benefits in exchange for political concessions in lockstep. And that is a kind of trap from which you need to escape at some point. Otherwise, you'll end up with no sovereignty left. It would work perfectly well, by the way, if the French weren't in it. Um, but uh, that's a separate. Uh, that's a separate. No, I mean the point is that because of the French and the Germans are both in it, being the UK in something that has France and Germany in it is basically like being in a flat share with a couple who are into sadomasochism. You know, it's like you're the you're the lodger, you're the tenant in this basic sadomasochistic flat share. Thatcher got it right, of course. She said, you know, the, 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 the problem with the EU is that the French are frightened of the Germans and so are the Germans. But, um, <laughs> but, but the, um, the, the, the really vital thing here is you don't need to have positive arguments. You merely need to say continued membership in this organisation, which seems to be generating... You know, the UK, for all its faults, generates some pretty nasty people and it generates populist movements. But the extent to which we've generated a nasty far-right movement so far is we've had lucky escapes. The fact that the European mm. Union is generating these uh, sentiments in fucking Holland, for crying out loud, right? Mm. 
yeah. is Sweden. Okay, all these places, which, uh, as far as the liberal mindset goes, are blameless and perfect, are spawning these extreme right political parties. And you're kind of going, okay, this this is not the EU doing what it was intended to do. You know, there are a lot of unintended consequences here, and its incapacity to either ask tough questions of itself, the fact that it has no capacity for introspection as an organization, and no capacity for error correction. And ask this question, right? Okay, the euro, universal freedom of movement, how many national legislatures would that have got through? In other words, how many political parties that proposed that would have got elected? None. In any nation in Europe. Right, and yet the European Union managed to impose both the currency and the freedom of movement on 27, 28 countries, which none of which would have chosen it individually. Suggests you're at huge risk of this thing called the Aberdeen paradox. Have a look on Wikipedia. It's a 1970s concept where a large group of people can all end up doing something that none of them wants to do, simply because of the belief that it's what everybody else wants to do. Mm. Wow, and it's a really, that, of, a really interesting really interesting source of really interesting source of of of, uh, of dysfunction in large decision making groups. The group thinks is the problem. Now, if you'd actually made the, the by the way, the European Union is a good idea in principle, and if you'd made the thing polycentric and you designed it on in, on on more biological lines, so there'd been an inter you know there'd been interim groups in between the kind of ultimate supranational thing and the national body. You could have created something worthwhile, but I think uh, I think as it stands, I think it's a decision making. Uh, okay, if it were a cockpit, you wouldn't fly on the plane. In terms of cockpit resource management, the decision making uh, structure of the European Union is awful. And by the way, the, I'm talking to someone who voted Remain, but then became so horrified by the fact that um, committed uh, Remainers couldn't see the opposite case and regarded everybody yeah. who adopted it as a moron. I, I found that so offensive that I said I no longer want to be associated with people whose understanding of human decision-making is so atrociously poor. Absolutely. Um, so it's very interesting. So, it, by the way, you can talk to lots of people in business, and you can talk to lots of people who know, who have very measured, sane ideas about the consequences of a no-deal Brexit, which is, yes, it's a bit problematic, but it's not Armageddon. Okay, why politicians believe it's Armageddon universally is because they don't know anything and they listen to treasury economists who are essentially just yeah. gaming the information anyway. Okay, yeah, um, for their own ends. But I mean, the fact is that the idea that it need be necessarily some sort of catastrophe, if you talk to a lot of business people, they go, No, we know what to do. As I said, there's a certain sort of business where you may say, well, you were quick enough to rearrange your supply chains when you could put loads of Brits out of work. So uh, now you get the chance to do it again. So sod you. They said the same thing about the euro, us not going into the euro, us not taking the euro in the UK. Well, you see, if you only understand efficiency and scale, and I really mean that. I mean, you know, I'm not sure there, you know, there's Ricardo's law of comparative advantage, isn't there, which is a bit, a bit fucking shaky anyway, right? in that it makes a load of assumptions. The other problem with Ricardo's law of, of comparative advantage, if you get too much specialization, you fragilize local economies. You know, Detroit was a wonderful example of specialization for a time. Uh, the problem is what happens when it goes wrong. So they only, they only understand gain, I suppose there's gains to specialization, gains to scale, uh, gains to, you know, general gains to free trade. And you see business essentially, and you see it's it's a grotesque underrating of capitalism to see its chief virtue as efficiency. 
Because capitalism isn't even efficient. The whole business of competition leads to insane duplication of efforts. It leads to, you know, if you think about it, you could, as a good Maoist, you wouldn't have in my local town, I've got Aldi, Lidl, Waitrose, two Waitroses, big one, little one, big Sainsbury's, little Sainsbury's, uh, big Tesco, smaller Tesco. Is there anything I'm missing? I haven't, we haven't got a Morrison. Now, that could so be much You're not missing more... anything there, by the way. Well, I, I quite like Morrison's, actually. I, I, I like a bit of yin and yang, you know. Um, but... Okay, you could undoubtedly supply groceries to people much more efficiently if you had the great grocery hall of the people number 20749. But there are a lot of, the, the point is that what you would destroy there is the process of discovery, which comes through offering people choice. And you'd never actually find out what people wanted, least of all by asking them what they wanted, which would be hopeless. What you realize is that the, the, the real virtue of capitalism is, is market-driven experimentation and discovery. And then efficiency is what you might call a byproduct of that. It's valuable, but it isn't the driving force of it at all. But as an engine of wealth creation, it's not bad either. Uh, well, the, no, exactly. Uh, and um, uh, also, by the way, I, I worry about our education system because it's essentially creating a totally stupid proxy for who's employable and who isn't. So let me give you an example, okay? If you're good at chess, you're probably quite bright, right? But no one would say the opposite. No one would say, well, you're no good at chess, so you're thick. Right. Now, if you're good at academic subjects, you're possibly reasonably intelligent, okay? But you can't say the opposite. And yet we're refusing to employ people who aren't graduates. Now, the way to discover whether someone's any good at advertising is to give them a job in advertising and watch. Mm. It's not to use, you know, we've never found a reliable proxy measure that people who study classics are better advertising people than people who study French. You know, we've never discovered anything of any value in that. And so one of the things we're doing at Ogilvy is we're deliberately employing people blind through non-standard channels. Well, apparently Theresa May's no good at chess, but so far no one's found anything she's actually good at. No, I mean, uh, um, she was determined, in fairness, um, I suppose. She um, seems to have uh, a very, very weird um, uh, mental uh, capacity for certain things. But actually, having said that, I think the deal's okay. Okay, you've got this backstop problem, but if it if it proves ultimately onerous, uh, you just resort to what, you know, perfidious Albion. You know, you mm. just th threaten people, game the system, uh, get Donald to fuck them over. You know, there are loads of things you could do. Right? You know, I, I mean, the extent to which these people are trammeled in their mind by some niceties of international law, what the fuck's the point of having Trident? <laughs> Rory, what you've said there about advertising and the, the sort of person who'd be good at advertising is actually a parallel to the sort of person who'd be good at trading and investing. And I see a lot of similarities between the behavioural finance area that relates obviously to advertising and of course to the financial markets this is why you could get the barrow boy trader for example who wouldn't perhaps pass the sort of exams that say some other people within the company would but would be hugely successful because on a level they understand the markets and understanding the markets is 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 where the value comes in well 2008 happened because banks started being run by people who thought they were clever and this belief that, you know, intelligence is uh, what's interesting about the Barrow Boy trader is he is probably using instincts which he himself doesn't understand. So that there is a huge intelligence in parts of the brain which aren't really connected to speech or rationalization. It's, of course, much older and much better honed 
uh, by experience. Uh, the capacity for reason is a pretty late evolutionary addition. It's like a kind of, you know, a, a, a Hewlett Packard um, or Texas Instruments calculator that's sellotaped to the front of your head. Uh, what's interesting is there is this technique called interoception, which is particular people become very, very good at reading their own emotions. So they'll make a distinction between excited, fearful, nervous, anxious, and they'll start to read it, and then they'll make cleverer inferences from their own emotions. And that's probably what happened with the Barrow Boys, is some of the Barrow Boys were rubbish, but they got weeded out. And there were certain mm. people who just had a remarkably good instinct for reading uh, information, for you know, a kind of instinctive pattern recognition, which they themselves probably fully didn't understand. I mean, Nassim Taleb calls this the green lumber fallacy. Yes. There was a guy, there were literally two traders. There was one guy who understood everything about the market in wood. And, where, and you know, every single bit of information about, you know, rainfall and this and that and the other, he put into some model and went bankrupt. And there was this other guy who was so ignorant about the category that he thought that green lumber, rather than being freshly cut wood that hadn't dried, he thought it was just wood painted green. He never even asked the question <laughs> yes. why you'd want to paint the word green. But he thought green lumber was wood painted green. But by using his instincts and merely looking at market behavior, he was able actually to extract more information, more pertinent information than the guy who was trying to understand it consciously. And uh, it's very, very interesting because you know, one of the extraordinary things I think that universities are doing is they're actually creating this kind of weird hyper obsession with rationalization. Which is part of the value of conservatism is that sometimes you shut up thinking and uh, and follow the amygdala. You know, you're allowed mm. to actually follow your instincts without necessarily being able to explain why. It does make life a hell of a lot less tiring. If you look at, say, you know, some of the weird pronouncements made on gender uh, now at universities, they're essentially made by people who are so uh, keen to construct an intellectually coherent view of their own obsession that they're pretty much prepared to ignore the evidence of reality. You know, they, they will actually say things that, you know, fundamentally aren't true in order to preserve the internal coherence of their contrived political mindset. My daughter, who's a bit of a feminist, is getting angry and gesticulating. <laughs> but no, but I mean, if you look at people, you know, there's a great phrase about Enoch Powell, which is he was driven mad by the remorselessness of his own logic. And you see that in people. You know, you see that in people, which is they'd rather things worked in theory than they worked in practice. Mm. Yes, definitely. That's a very economic, a very economic uh, problem. I mean, beautifully, I mean, Cass Sunstein actually admits this thing. He says, look, I'm identified with the Chicago School of Economics, and I see evidence that putting up the minimum wage doesn't create unemployment. And he said, I should be delighted by this finding. People are earning more. They're not losing their jobs. And yet, because my identity, my the football team I support, is the Chicago School of Economics, the information makes me sad because it disagrees with my fundamental um, tube map of the world. And that's kind of terrifying, you know. And this is academics who are probably more guilty of this than ordinary punters. And one of the other extraordinary things, if you think about it, is I, I think there. I mean, I, I think there are only people. There are only two lots of people worth talking to in any problem. You talk to people who have direct, long-term experience of the problem, or you talk to the world's most brilliant person. So, if you want to know about crime, the two people to talk to is the world's single best criminologist or cops.
Okay, if you want to mm. understand about crime, those are the people who understand it. There yeah. probably are three people in criminology who are just significantly brilliant and imaginative and interesting. You know, and I'd be interested in listening to them because they'd suggest experimenting with things that cops probably wouldn't. But basically, you know, one of the things is that you know when when the Today program interviews someone on the hard Brexit, they interview some sort of academic bollocks, right? If you want to know about trade, talk to customs officers. You know, talk to people who work for UPS. Talk to DHL. You know, you don't don't talk to these stupid people who have a kind of weird aggregate theoretical understanding of the issue, because all the tacit knowledge that's present in the uh, you know, in the customs officer or the UPS driver or whatever, is completely lost once you aggregate it up to a kind of theoretical level. Which we round things off with media picks, Paul. Yes, just before we do that, could you tell us what you've got in the pipeline, Rory? What's coming up? You mentioned nudge stock, which sounds fascinating. What, what, uh, could you tell us a bit about that and other things? The book's also coming out something like May the 9th, and it's going to be called, as I said, uh, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. And it's an essentially a plea to us to abandon narrow process and experimentation and try things which are the opposite of logical. In economics, in physics, okay, the opposite of a good idea is wrong. In real life, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. That's, that's why markets are so important, by the way. If there were, as economists believe, a single optimal solution to problems, you wouldn't need all this variation. But the fact is, actually, that over time, good becomes bad and bad becomes good. So what we actually like isn't remotely consistent. Because when I was a kid, I always tell this story, when I was a kid, the richer kids at school had been to Schiphol or they'd been to Dubai Airport or they'd been to Changi in Singapore. They go, oh, it's really amazing. You know, shops and everything and a restaurant. And I bought a Walkman for 100 pounds. It's amazing. Like, shops and restaurants. Okay. And then over time, all airports become like shopping centers. And after a bit, we start going, oh, fuck it out. It takes me an hour and a half to get to a plane for a 40-minute flight. And we start going, London City Airport is brilliant. You get off the plane and 20 minutes later you're in a taxi okay so our preferences is not are not only are formed comparatively and so the opposite of something that's good but that is good in a totally different dimension can suddenly become brilliant and so the idea that the, that the business is an optimization problem when it's really a discovery and adaptation problem and so in discovery and adaptation you're a lot more random than you are when you're trying to optimize let me give you an example of and, and one of the worries is that too much computerization turns everything into an optimization problem so your sat nav is a bit thick by which i mean it's very very clever if you ask your sat nav i want to get to gatwick airport right? Okay. It does a very, very good job of telling you the fastest way on average expected to get to Gatwick. I ignore it. I don't go on the M25. I go on the A25. Why? Because what I'm interested in when I go to Gatwick is downside variance minimization. If I get stuck on the M25, even though there's only, only a two or 3% chance, I'm stuck behind a lorry for an hour and a half that's jackknifed to Clackett Lane. I miss my plane. If I go on the A25, it'll almost always be 20 minutes slower, but it won't be an hour slower. So I'll always catch my plane. It just means I get a bit less time in the lounge, right? My sat-nav doesn't understand that because it thinks it's an optimization problem. Now you give it a more complicated problem, which is how should I get to Gatwick? Should I go by car? Should I go by train? Should I get a taxi, right? Now that involves trade-offs which are incommensurable. 
So for example, at some level, if I'm going for 10 days, it probably makes sense to get a taxi because the parking for 10 days is more expensive than the taxi. If I'm going for one night, it's more sensible to drive there and park, okay? If, now, if it's raining heavily, that will affect the roads. Um, if I'm going early in the morning, that will affect the roads and how busy the trains are. Am I going from the north terminal, which is a long way from the railway station, or the south terminal? How much luggage do I have? All of those things have to be factored into my decision. And what the satnavs is giving me is a very, very narrow answer to the wrong question. It's not answering the question, how should I get to Gatwick? It's saying, assuming you want to go to, by car and assuming you're treating this as an optimization problem. On the way home, by the way, it probably, I do follow my sat-nav because I know I'm going by car because I'm, my car's already at the airport, so I'm not much choice. And I also, it's not a crisis if one time in 100 I get stuck in bad traffic, whereas I, there's no plane to miss. I'll just get home after dinner. And so... Um, it's asking, it's giving you a brilliant, brilliant answer to the wrong question. And that's the vital thing, which I think we've got to be really, really wary of, that, that real, real life questions are messy. They involve lots of variables, which can't easily, which have to be traded off against each other. Now, you know, we pretend in our brains that we're making decisions on the basis of optimization. And in many situations, it's very good that we do. It's very, very good not to tell your wife you chose her as a satisfying decision. Well, I quite liked you, and you looked pretty good, and you didn't seem to be batshit crazy, so I thought we could get married. Isn't the most <laughs> romantic thing you can say, right? Okay. On the other hand, actually, it'd be a very interesting experiment to get guys to go out with a girl who was totally gorgeous and perfect, but was in one respect you know, evidently slightly lunatic, to see what they do. Because my hunch would be even guys, okay, would run a mile at some point. That's absolutely true. I've got a friend who did that. And she was absolutely gorgeous, but she was crazy. And so it just doesn't work. It gets old quickly, basically. He just said, he just said no, no, I, I think you probably can probably confidently say that they, they did engage in sexual congress for a period of time. But over the That's longer right. term, over the longer term, he just goes, it. okay, the downside cost is just too high. I'm going to come That's home and find my right. wardrobe's been set on fire. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay, yes. got it. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, of course, we you know we have to factor in those two variables and they're not commensurable. And, you know, the, the argument that I am right as a remainer, you are wrong as a lever is stupid because the lever is probably looking more at the downside variance risk, loss to so sovereignty, accountability, and the fact that the EU seems to be a, 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 you know, a fascist political party manufacturing engine. And they're looking at the fact that actually there's nothing wrong, you know, with freedom of movement de facto, but de jure freedom of movement is bloody dangerous. You know, they asked the perfectly reasonable question, how can Angela Merkel, who I never voted for, allow a million Syrians into the country? Um, after six years, all of those people will be entitled to move to the UK. How is that okay? How is it okay for some of the smaller European countries to sell passports to Russians who can then move to London? Okay. That isn't fucking okay. That is not fucking okay, right? Mm. And so, I mean, you know, my point is there, there's also a psychological difference, by the way, between de facto and de jure uh, unlimited immigration, which is de facto says, yep, you're coming here, and the person goes, well, I'm grateful you let me come. 
Whereas the psychological move under the de jure is I'm coming here and there's fucking nothing you can do to stop me. So having people move to a country with a sense of entitlement is not the same as having the same people move there with a sense of gratitude. A nudge stock, Rory, a quick word on nudge stock. So I can plug, we've got uh, Sir Paul Collier, um, who's brilliant on this, by the way. I mean, really fantastic on understanding uh, being from Sheffield and that. Um, uh, but uh, he's very, very interesting on, um, uh, he's written a very good, interesting book called Exodus, which is a balanced economic assessment of migration and its upsides and downsides. We've got um, Tricia Wang, who I mentioned, who's a fantastic digital anthropologist. We've got uh, Robert Frank, who is, as I said, the author of uh, The Economic Naturalist. And wait for it, we've got Dr. Heuristic himself, Gerd Gigerenza. Ah. Who is, okay. if you like, the slight um, counterpoint to the what you might call the biases program of behavioral science, because his point of view is that heuristics often do a very, very good job and can indeed be better than calculation in many uh, decision-making capabilities. And if that isn't enough, we've got a band called the Ukes of Hazard, which is a ukulele band. <laughs> so even, even if you hate behavioral science, uh, come along for the Ukes of Hazard. I think, I think the website is www.nudgestock.co.uk. And then um, uh, I'd also be grateful if you pre-order my book on Amazon because pre-orders are great. I'm doing it right now. They create a massive sales spike which then fools the algorithm into thinking you're selling much more than you really are. Um, so you then end up on sort of top 10 lists and things. So pre-orders are disproportionately valuable, folks. Well, I've just ordered it. It says delivery will be the 7th of May. So that's fantastic. Looking forward to that. So it'll actually um, arrive so on the day it comes out. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely excellent. Thank you, Rory. So um, media picks, Tim, what, what do you think? What's uh, What have you got for us this week? I have just one. I'll be brief. Um, it's a Nicolas Cage film that so clearly needs no introduction because it's batshit crazy, as you would expect. Brilliant, excellent. It's, it's very well shot. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to watch, um, given that it's a Nicolas Cage film. Um, it's extremely bloodthirsty. So it's, it's basically his primary colour is red throughout. Um, but it, it, it's very, very engaging. Um, so hold on, are you saying it's called Mandy? Mandy, yes. M-A-N-D-Y? as well. Oh, it's about vengeance, is it? Excellent. It's a revenge tragedy. And um, I, I, I couldn't, I mean, it, I've, I've probably said more than enough, given that it's got the, the key factor is Nicolas Cage. Um, I couldn't tell, I couldn't decide whether I hated loving it or I loved hating it. But that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for that, right. now what's, what's it on? Netflix? Amazon Prime? Um, I, I was watching it on Sky Movies. Sky Movies. It's called Mandy. I'm off to my Sky Q on my app to remote record it right now. Excellent. This is this is living in the future. This is fantastic. Excellent. I'll go and record that. That sounds brilliant. Uh, I also annoy my children because my children, um, the way I used to punish children when I was young, because you know you can't hit them anymore and all that stuff, is threatening to watch art house movies, which never fails. <laughs> I go, okay, if you don't go to bed now, I'm going to put on last year at Marian Bad. Okay, and they go practically insane. Yeah, uh, Jonathan Meads was even better because th th unfortunately their vocabulary grew and they can actually understand what Jonathan Meads was saying because I adore Jonathan Meads. And yet, of course, if you're a five-year-old child, ooh, it's that man there with the spectacles using lots of funny words. And so I, I used to have a selection of Jonathan Meads uh, DVDs just to make the children go to bed as well. Works every time. 
So, Rory, I don't know if you know, but if we'd like a media pick from you if you've got one, like a book or a film or something that you think is either really, really good or you can pick something that's really bad that we should avoid. Ah, I obviously started watching Billions because I rather like that. A huge fan of Narco. Oh, yes. As you'd expect. Yeah. As I have made this point, I mean, it's ridiculous that El Chapo's in prison when he could be helping the UK perfect borderless trade. Uh, based on his enormous experience of getting goods across borders uh, with very low friction. <laughs> that is thinking outside the box. Yeah, man, the man, box. Of, man of that talent being wasted in some American... We should extradite him. You know, man of that talent in an American prison. Ridiculous. You know, the idea that you wouldn't be able to get your bloody diabetes medication with El Chapo on your team. <laughs> You know, <laughs> that's absolutely right. You can't you can't argue with that logic, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, uh, so obviously, I rewatched Narcos. If you haven't watched it, watch it because oh, I've second that. Tragically, I've got into the habit of rewatching it, which drives my kids slightly nuts because I will actually just go, "Oh, sod it, let's watch season three, episode four again." Uh, if you haven't seen it, um, uh, and my brother-in-law was the scriptwriter, but I'm plugging it anyway on ITV Player. Um, I think it's Manhunt uh, or Manhunter, uh, the thing where oh. Colin Sutton. Uh, is played by um, you know you know the thing. It's about the um, uh, the uh, case of both Millie Dowler, effectively the catching of Levi Belfield. Oh right, yeah, not heard of that. I'll definitely check that out. That sounds brilliant. Uh, it's got Martin Clunes playing uh, Colin Sutton, the uh, detective, and um, that got seven million viewers, deservedly. I, I'm I'm saying this partly not only to support my brother-in-law because I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I, um, um, anything crime-related. Oh, podcasts. Why don't I do that? Why don't I recommend a podcast? Um, Totally surreal, totally surreal comedy, the Beef and Dairy Network podcast, uh, which is uh, pretends to be a, a, an agricultural podcast, but kind of isn't. <laughs> but is a, a form of you, you don't worry because you'll know within four minutes whether you love it or hate it. And it is, okay. uh, you know, a level of masterful surrealness, which is uh, great. And then other podcasts would be. What other ones would I very highly recommend? Obviously, the, the, the big one in the UK is there's no such thing as a fish, uh, which is a kind of spin-off from QI. Uh, that's fantastic. Oh, yes. Um, I'll tell you one, which is actually the son of a friend of mine produces it. Um, but it's um, if you like movies, um, it's called Films to be Buried With. And it's essentially oh. the podcast equivalent of Desert Island Discs, but for films. Excellent. But he often asked, he, he's a comedian, um, uh, that Brett Goldstein, who, who presents it. He interviews very interesting people from the film industry. And there are also really interesting questions, which I've been mulling over since, since it was asked, which is, is there a film which you really, really enjoyed the first time, but later on you suddenly realised that there was a premise or an assumption that was essentially false, which completely undermined it for you? And I'm not, right. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can come to um, uh, 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 a conclusion on that, but I have had... Uh, th there's a very interesting question I always ask about films, which is there are films that are great and there are films that are rewatchable and, and mm. infinitely rewatchable, and they overlap, but they're not the same. Maybe you could say that every film that's really rewatchable in its way is kind of great. And, of course, Hitchcock's produced, what, six or seven of them. Uh, you know, Billy Wilder's yeah. probably done. Billy Wilder's probably done. You know, five. Um, uh, weirdly, I've never had the urge to watch ET ever again. I'm sorry, I would nominate Jaws as a film that's endlessly rewatchable and arguably is great. But it's great for me. Actually, I think it's David Thompson, the reviewer, because he's given it the best 
capsule review. Uh, it, it's actually impossible to beat for brevity this one, which is zero to the power of ten. Brilliant. And you can't beat that one for the brevity. That is brilliant. I see exactly what he means within one sentence. Fantastic. And so, you know, I've never, I've never had the urge to rewatch Citizen Kane. Um, I'd watch the Third yeah. Man, you know, fifteen, twenty times. And uh, that, that's a, that's a subject that always really fascinates me: is which films are actually rewatchable. Uh, that that's something that uh, you know I'd, I'd love to discuss. What is it about a film that actually means Ferris Bueller's Day Off, for example, would be another one. You know, what is yeah. it that makes that film not only really, really enjoyable the first time round, but actually infinitely, almost infinitely rewatchable to a point where I always say, you know, you've got a pitch in the morning. It's 11 o'clock. You already own the film on DVD. And yet you stay up until one o'clock in the morning watching the end. You know, that's yeah. the kind of weird thing I've never understood. And I'd love to know about. Brilliant. Well, look, I've... Um... I've just got a, a, a book recommendation, and that is The Skeptical Investor. We had John Stepek on the show a couple of podcasts ago, and it was absolutely excellent. I've just read his book. Uh, I'm going to be posting a review about it, but I would highly recommend it for anybody who wants to take charge of their own investment. It's got good behavioural investing advice, and it's extremely well written. So that would that would be my recommendation for the media picks for this week and that just leaves me to say rory thank you so much for coming on the show if somebody wanted to get in contact with you um do you are you on twitter or what would be the best way of of somebody reaching out to you uh twitter is at rory sutherland all one word um my email address is rory.sutherland at ogilvy.com that's uh, o-g-i-l-v-y.com um and i'm very very happy to do after sales service absolutely brilliant well thank you so much uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show it's been fascinating i'm sure our listeners will agree so have a fantastic time at nudge stock uh, we hope to see you there uh, good luck with the book i've definitely ordered it thank you so much for being so generous with your time as well it's been absolutely brilliant pleasure absolute delight thank you so, so much thanks rory bye-bye This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.